Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and I know I speak of this with great frequency, but it is one of those great joys to contemplate that because the Holy Spirit is the primary author of the Scriptures, that when you walked into this room this morning, uh, whether tired or excited, eager or weary, um, discouraged or hopeful, the Spirit had written this a long time ago with this morning in mind for you. This is the complexity and the wisdom of our God that he could write a book thousands of years ago, literally, and have the original reading audience in mind and have us in mind and everyone in between and everyone that comes after. Uh, The great joy of that is that as we go to God's word, it is God's word for you today. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking The crippled, healthy, the lame, walking, the blind, seeing, and they glorify the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. 
And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would give life and light to your word. Uh, Give us understanding uh, and give us belief, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Take you back a couple of years, I guess, for some of you. For some of you, maybe perhaps this week, take you back to school, whether that's middle school or high school. That dreaded day where you walked into class for a big test. Now, maybe you were prepared. Maybe you weren't. Maybe you liked tests, some of you weirdos. Maybe you didn't. Of course, you take the test, and almost always at some point in the life of a student, you get to the moment where it's kind of crushed your soul, and you're like, oh, I hate these things. Why do we even do these things? These tests are dumb. We forget, actually, I guess, from the other side of the equation as a teacher, uh, how really incredibly useful, not just useful, but uh, how wonderfully beneficial testing can be when it's a good test given the right way. I mean, students, I don't think, probably understand the joy in a teacher's heart to give a really difficult question and to watch a student that's wrestled through the material take the material and and understand it and comprehend it and then apply it in a way that they get it right, not just by dumb luck, so to speak, but having thought it out. I mean, you really think about it, a test properly given showcases how well we understand the material. In fact, actually, I would argue that testing when done in a proper fashion is a conversation between teacher and student where it helps showcase to the student the areas that they've misunderstood what's taking place. Now, again, that doesn't account for laziness and sin and things like that, but it can be a really useful interaction where we begin to see that which we don't get, or perhaps to showcase that which we do brilliantly. Why am I talking about testing on a Sunday morning? Oh, right, already given some of you panic attacks, you're panicking, I got a test this week. I'm going to contend, I'm going to argue that verses 21 through 28, that's exactly what's happening. That we're going to watch Jesus, the Lord of life, put all of those around him through a test. Now, it's not a test that's administered with a a Scantron sheet that you fill in the bubbles with a number two pencil. It's not a test that's administered via an, an essay question that if you have no idea what you're talking about, enough words might confuse the teacher. 
It's not the kind of test that you can easily and obviously tell when you've passed and when you've failed. Uh, Instead, it's more of the kind of test designed to showcase what people are made of. And I suspect that if we think about it from that perspective, it might make a little bit more sense with what Jesus is doing and how he's interacting uh, with the Canaanite uh, woman here. Now, in order to understand the test that he's given, we do have to have a, a little bit of background to this interchange. This interchange is hard. I mean, no, no two ways around it. Uh, by every southern standard imaginable, Jesus is downright rude to this woman. Right? There is no kind of way to soften it. He calls her a dog to her face. And not the kind of cute, you know, fuzzy white thing that we have living in our house. Where this is a time in the world in which dogs were unclean, nasty, horrible, vicious creatures. He is intentionally ignoring her, and then when he stops ignoring her, he's intentionally rude to her. Oh man, that's hard. What, what do we do with a passage like that? Jesus is the Lord of life. He's compassion incarnate. He never sins. He's never evil. Well, it's because he's testing. But he's testing within kind of the context of how Matthew is explaining this story the real true story of Jesus. And Matthew has framed this out to help us understand this particular book of the Bible is written to kind of challenge how we think about the kingdom of God, right? The Jews had their own particular way of thinking about God's kingdom. It was unsurprisingly very Jewish, It looked like eating a certain way, and it it looked like circumcision, and it looked like certain ceremonial laws and keeping certain rituals and uh, even looking at the temple and the tabernacle, I mean the synagogue and things like that. Matthew begins his book by challenging us to think about the fact that, look, uh, Christ's kingdom doesn't look as Jewish as the Jews wanted it to look. It also doesn't look nearly as American as the Americans would want it to look. It looks like Christ, for he is the king. That's why it starts, the very first kind of recorded thing we have in Matthew of Jesus kind of beginning to teach, it's the Beatitudes, where he lays out what the kingdom looks like. And it's, it's not at all the value set that we would list, is it? Poor in spirit, meek, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, even building to the point of being persecuted. I mean, if we were going to build a job description for an associate pastor, if we were going to hire, I suspect many of us would be looking at other things besides we want a man who mourns all the time. Well, probably wouldn't be on our list of qualifications now, would it? Instead, Jesus is changing our minds to think about the kingdom of God from his perspective. He then goes into the Sermon on the Mount to say that the kingdom of God is reflected in the heart, not just in the hands. The Jews uh, had falsely handled God's law at this point and tried to reduce the kingdom of God to a way that we acted, to just externals, a, a behavior set. Jesus is challenging it and challenging the way they think about it to say, no, God's law, it impacts the heart. It's, it's designed to certainly change the hands, but to change the heart first and foremost. It's because the kingdom of God is ruled and reigned by a Jewish 
Rabbi Carpenter from 2,000 years ago. Now, that would have been particularly difficult for the Jews of that day to understand because their understanding of the kingdom of God and their understanding of salvation uh, was built off of the Old Testament and the the specific background of the Old Testament is showcasing the need for salvation. I mean, that's why you have the whole entire law given out there is to showcase how badly we need the salvation of God and in doing so to kind of frame it out as, as being a very narrow thing. God's Word is it's not uh, universalist, it's not Unitarian in that regard where everybody gets the happy ending. The Old Testament does a brilliant job of, of teaching that from the very beginning and helping us understand that there are those that are in God's kingdom and uh, sad reality, there are those that are His enemies. And those enemies will be destroyed, whether they be enemies of nation or enemies of obedience. The result is you have a Jewish nation at this time that understands salvation specifically connected to a physical lineage, to genes. Salvation is more than anything connected to a culture, to a DNA, to a people, to a city, to a region. If you were to know God in this time, you had to know the Jews. That's an amazing statement because they were a very small people group that lived in a seemingly insignificant part of the world. But if you didn't know them, you didn't know God. They were the ones that had the Bible. They were the ones that had uh, the only mechanism whereby to know Him. Now, in the New Testament, that begins to change, and the Lord is, uh, as He showcased His mercy in the Old Testament, He begins to showcase it in the New, specifically showing the width of salvation and how salvation is extended to people who aren't Jews, most of us in the room. The background to this passage, though, is the extremely nationalistic understanding that the Jews have for salvation. You have to get that if you're going to understand what Jesus is doing. And what we're going to contemplate, briefly, albeit, is a number of different kind of uh, points of brilliance that we get to marvel at Jesus about in terms of his relationship with that. Now, all right, backstory. 21, he leaves where he was. He's been moving around the lake, and he moves, actually, in this case, back up the other direction to withdraw to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Most of us not being... uh, geography buffs don't understand the significance of this. He's left Jewish territory. The king of the Jews, the Lord of life, has left the Jews. And at this point, he's gone, gone amongst the Gentiles, gone to a place that was not just even Gentile, but very Gentile. So much so that it's highlighted, highlighted there in verse 22 that the first interchange that we get to see him have in this Gentile land is with a Canaanite woman. Matthew even choosing Canaanite here instead of Phoenician or whatever uh, to highlight the, the, the emotional punch that this woman represents the enemies of God. This is the kind of person that uh, we would expect to hate God and we would expect to hate Jesus. This is the kind of person that the Jews would have uh, treated as anathema. In fact, even by this point, uh, they're treating uh, these people as unclean. No real contact between them. 
And Jesus is going to have an interaction with this Gentile representing the enemies of God and have an interaction that is going to be the most beautiful test showcasing uh, his wisdom just perfectly. First, it's going to showcase his his brilliance, his beauty, in that his test is designed to showcase perseverance in his saints, to showcase the, the kind of stick-to-itiveness that true faith can produce. 22, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region comes out and was crying. Now, the language there is uh, intentionally chosen. Uh, English is a little bit weak in the sense of our verbs don't clarify super clearly if it was a one-time thing that happened in the past, if it was a completed thing that happened in the past, or if it was a continuous thing that happened in the past. Greek's a little bit better about that, uh, and it's certainly clear here, this is not a one-time thing. This is not a a woman who comes out, sees Jesus, and is like, hey, Jesus, help me out, please, buddy. Uh, This is a woman who actually uh, (laughs) is a constant presence in the ministry of Jesus once he shows up. You get the impression that she comes out of town, that's the way the language is written, she comes out of town to meet him before he ever makes it to the region, and she follows him the entire way in. And the entire time that he's walking and talking with his disciples and he's traveling into town, she's behind him and beside him and in front of him pleading with him to heal her daughter. I mean, her perseverance, her stick-to-itiveness is so great that eventually the disciples are like, you have to get rid of her. Like, you got to make her go away. She's not leaving I love that. It's interesting because this type of faith, this type of of perseverance and prayer, this type of interaction with the Lord Jesus is uh, frequently endorsed in the New Testament. Luke tells us that. We get the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11, and immediately after that, Jesus uh, tells a parable of um, a friend helping out another friend, and he he makes the point that, look, the friend's not going to help the other one out just because they're friends. Friend's going to help the other friend out because he's so uh, obnoxious in his perseverance that eventually he'll just yield. And interestingly, he tells his people that's what our prayer life is supposed to be like. It's designed to be in such a way that it's with such passion and such zeal and such perseverance that we're just not going to go away. I was reading a uh, Lutheran pastor not too long ago, and uh, he, he made an interesting kind of assessment as uh, he was contemplating the status of the American church, and he said, you know, I think the church would probably be a lot healthier if we had more Christians that prayed so aggressively they were mistaken for being drunk. Right? You, you think about that's some of the great saints in the Old Testament, uh, particularly women, Go to the temple seeking for the Lord to open their wombs so they can have children. And the priests are like, look, you got to get out of here. You can't be drinking. You can't, you can't, be, you can't be getting you know, drunk and then doing this. I'm not drunk. I'm just praying to the Lord. Jesus' test showcases this is kind of moment of brilliance from a woman that we would expect to behave like a total pagan. I mean, she's a Canaanite. 
She's one of the outcasts. She's one of the rejects. She's one of the enemies of God. And yet here she is in perseverance and in obedience. Which, of course, if we go to pause and think about that for a moment, I would then immediately say, well, what does your prayer life look like and what does mine? Interestingly, this is a woman who doesn't have great access to the Bible. She's not read any of the New Testament. She, by every estimation, probably doesn't have much access to the Old Testament. Remember, she's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. She's, by every kind of imaginable standard, probably just going on reputation alone. She knows roughly who this Jesus is and is willing to bank her entire life upon him and throw herself at him. Interestingly, we have the promises of God written in front of us all the time, specifically the one saying, look, in prayer, ask, and ask regularly, and ask often, and ask with perseverance, and yet sometimes we don't. Well, I asked twice. That was good enough, I guess. No, instead, Jesus' test showcases for her this kind of just moment of brilliance, of this perseverant faith that we can just delight in and celebrate. I, I can't wait to see her in heaven and to tell her how much of an encouragement her faith was to me. Well, next thing that happens in this test, and I suspect this was actually the bigger test that was designed. I suspect it was not for her as much as it was for the disciples. She's following them, constantly crying out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, that is some strong language there. I suspect she's making a fairly strong theological statement. Again, maybe just parroting what she's heard, but it's pretty good. Explaining why. My daughter, my young daughter is oppressed by a demon. We don't know the full extent of what that means. We do know demonic possession is real. It still happens doesn't happen for the people of God. The demons can't invade where the Holy Spirit resides, but it is an awful thing. And this mother, this poor mother, is having such um, broken heart for her child. She continues to, to plead with Jesus in 23. Jesus doesn't answer her. Again, a Gentile, a, a culturally at least, seemingly an unbeliever. In 23, here you see the disciples, they, they fail one test, but absolutely ace the other. They fail the compassion test just brilliantly, spectacularly. It's, a, it's an F minus. I mean, it is bad. Jesus, just shut her up. Please. But it's interesting how they suggest to shut her up. Would you please just cast out the demon so she'll go away? You get to see a change is happening in the disciples where at the beginning of the ministry, they're, they're marveling every time Jesus does anything. They're shocked when he does things. In just a you know, previous chapter or so, when he walked on water, they absolutely lose their minds. And interestingly, we're seeing spiritual development happen where they're like, well, of course you can cast out demons at a range. Right? Of course you can cast out demons with a word. Of course you don't have to be there. Why? Because you have the power of God because you are God. One of those little kind of throwaway sentences that we've probably read a dozen times and never really paid attention to. But interestingly, the disciples are like, look, you've got to help her, if for nothing else, so she'll leave us alone. Just cast out the demon, please. We know you're God. 
And I, I suspect that that, again, is, that's probably the, the most significant part of this test and this interchange, is to prepare the disciples for what's coming. It's for them to be firmly rooted in understanding the divinity of Jesus so that when He does go back to Jerusalem to be murdered, uh, that they're emotionally and spiritually ready for the task at hand. But it's interesting how this huge test, and in some sense that huge victory, is just, it's done in the mundane elements of life. And I think there's probably a substantial lesson to be learned there for all of us, is that uh, we've been kind of tricked as a a country into a hero fantasy, where we think that kind of the best and the the most brilliant moments of life are in the heroic decisions, the the kind of of once-in-a-lifetime kind of moments of will you be successful or not. And forgetting that I suspect the far more important decisions are the mundane ones. The normal ones, the ordinary ones, the ones that seem so common that we don't even catch them. Why we know you're God, just healer. I love it. Well, we continue and see what Jesus is up to. Interesting is she's constantly walking around him, constantly pleading with him, walking behind him. You have to think at some point it just gets awkward. I mean, can you imagine that? A young mom just weeping, constantly walking behind him, pleading with Jesus. At one point, we find out she actually starts crawling on her hands and knees. She's so unbelievably distraught, and Jesus just acting like she's not there. Whew, that's awkward. 23, the disciples finally addressing it with no compassion, but certainly great faith. Jesus answering in, in verse 24, And his answer is uh, certainly a clear understanding of what his ministry is. He's been very upfront about this from the very beginning. Uh, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He, He tells what he's there to do. What is his ministry on earth? His ministry on earth is to save his people. Again, we we don't like the emotional ramifications of this, but he doesn't save everybody. Not everybody goes to heaven. In fact, some are under his great judgment for all eternity. He's there to save his own. The trick is the misunderstanding that takes place. Because when he says house of Israel, they immediately hear this thinking again, a genetic lineage. Well, he's here to save the Jews. No, no, that's actually wrong. He's not there to save the Jews. He's there to save his, his people. And interestingly, what's happening is, is he's showcasing his kingdom is a kingdom of the heart, not a kingdom of the DNA. It's a kingdom that is um, manifested in a transformed heart, one that is obedient and full of love to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. His answer, though seemingly quite rude, I've only come for the house of Israel, if actually you have a spiritual mindset, is quite hopeful. Because what he's telling her is, I'm here for my people. The issue is not whether or not you're a Jew or a Canaanite. The issue is, are you one of mine? It doesn't matter how you grew up or where you grew up. It matters, do you know Jesus? And what your relationship is to Him. 
Again, I make this point with great regularity, but it's one that I think we need to hear and hear with great frequency, and particularly for the children of the church. Salvation is not transmitted through your culture or through your DNA, through your genes, through your parents. You don't go to heaven simply because your parents do. You don't go to heaven simply because your parents take you to church. Because you happen to grow up under the reading of the Bible and to learn the Bible in Sunday school. And we go to heaven through a relationship with Jesus. Being joined with Him where His blood covers our sins, His righteousness is given to us. We go to heaven by knowing Him. Not knowing about Him. Not knowing simply where He's to be found, but actually being with Him. The story doesn't stop, it continues. He gives her this uh, almost rude answer, but I think it's actually quite hopeful if you understand it correctly. In 25, she kind of crawls around and kneels in front of him and says what has to be one of the most pathetic cries that you would ever have heard. A mom watching her daughter be destroyed and You can imagine her just sobbing it out, Lord, help. Just help me. Just help me. And this is the point that you would expect Jesus to just go, okay, yeah. I mean, on kind of further reading, we don't really see anywhere else that Jesus gets an honest request that he turns down. Every other situation, once you get to this point, the earnest, the the, the broken-spirited, Jesus help me, this is where he always does. And so if you were kind of reading with expectation, you would think, okay, this is where Jesus is going to help her. And unfortunately, this is actually where it gets uncomfortable. The rest of it's been easy. Lord, help me, 26, he answers, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, we do not get the emotional punch of this because we are a nation that is so rich and we stand on the shoulders of those who have bred dogs for so long that we have these little, you know, adorable fluffy things that have been bred over, you know, hundreds of years to be as lazy as humanly possible and want to just, you know, cuddle up next to you and they sleep in our beds and they eat at our tables and we love them and we treat them as our, you know, extra people in our house and that awful abominable term of fur babies and terrible things like that. You go to other parts of the world, though, where money isn't like coming out our ears and not growing on trees. You don't have pets like this. You don't think about animals like this. When you have to worry about feeding yourself, the dumbest thing you're going to do is try to feed something fun. The only other thing you feed, when you're worried about feeding yourself, the only other thing you feed are work animals because they're the things that keep you eating as well. So Jesus is not throwing to her here some sort of kind of veiled reference of something adorable and pleasant, a cute, cuddly little critter. Uh, What he is referring to her here as is very unpleasant. It is, again, this is the point where it's shockingly rude. This is the point where if you're watching this and like gone with the wind, the, the whole room gasps. It's so like surprising what he says. 
Why can I not help you? Or why will I not help you at this moment at least? Because it's not right for Jesus to take the blessings that are reserved for his people and give them to outcasts and rejects and dogs like you. Now that is an evangelistic strategy, isn't it? Again, I love all the books, Evangelize Like Jesus. And I'm like, I'm not sure you've read your Bible. I mean, if, again, if we're in the room, you have to think his disciples are even like wincing a little bit, going, man, that, that, that stung. And you would expect under any other circumstance to hear the most spectacular string of insults come from her. In fact, actually, emotionally, we'd be prepped for that. In verse 27, she gives what is, I think, one of the best answers given to Jesus in the entire Bible. One, because this woman is so staggeringly quick-witted, it's magnificent. I mean, wow, she is fantastic. But to the humility that she takes with this, Right? Jesus insults her to her face. I can't give you this blessing because these blessings are reserved for my people. They're not reserved for those people. They're not reserved for the outcast, for the, for the unbeliever. Ultimately, hinting at certainly the Gentiles. She takes his illustration and turns it back on him. Yes, I understand Jesus. You don't take the food away from the children who are potentially starving to death to give it to uh, wild animals or pets or street dogs or things like that. But you know what? The animals that stay in your home, even those you don't starve to death. Even your work animals, you don't starve to death. Even just the, the, the wild animals that are around, you don't intentionally starve them to death. In fact, actually, they get, you know, the, the household pets, they get the privilege of eating the trash. And I would be content with that. Her response is one staggeringly quick-witted. My goodness, it's so sharp. But it is perhaps one of the most humble sentences recorded in the entirety of the scriptures from someone's mouth that is not named Jesus. Jesus puts it on her to say, look, uh, why should I help you? You're a Gentile. You're an outcast. You're unclean. And she says, you're right. I am all of those things and much worse. But you're still a merciful God. I love her answer. I mean, it would do us well to spend our lives thinking about this. Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. This is the only time he says that in the scriptures in Matthew. It's the only time he actually connects great with the word faith. Never given to a Jew, never given to his disciples. Reserved for a Canaanite woman. He just called a dog the sentence prior. What is he doing? He's putting her in a test so that she would see her faith worked out and we would see her faith worked out. 
And I suspect the thing that is, uh, at least for me, the most uh, brilliant and the most wonderful and the most beautiful and the most just kind of marvelous, she passes the test. I mean, certainly she's a dear Christian, but because she doesn't let her ego get in the way of her relationship with Jesus. You see, that's what his test with her is designed to showcase. He puts a hard term in front of her that, again, most of us would have exploded on. I mean, can you imagine that? You you go to the store, you can't find the thing that you're, you know, you're looking for, so you find one of the sales associates, and you're like, hey, excuse me, you know, sir or miss, would you, could you help me find the, the product I'm looking for? And they're like, oh, I can't help you. You're unclean. You're a loser. You're a bad person. I, I can't help you. Or worse yet, if they actually said, oh, I can't help you. You're a dog. Or something even worse than that. The better analogs emotionally punched today are things I probably shouldn't say in the pulpit. Would any of us be like, you know what? That's probably a fair assessment. Could you still help me anyways? None of us would do that, would we? I've joked, I say, this is the thing that makes sitcoms uh, funny. The thing that makes sitcoms funny is they have the delay between the insult or the problem or whatever it is and the response so that you get jokes in between. Most of our lives aren't that funny because we have the insult, the, the conflict or whatever, and then the immediate explosion of self the immediate explosion of pride, the immediate explosion of self-centeredness, of of self-desire, of self-protection. I mean, it's, it's almost comical how quickly for us as Americans we have this, like, just blinding need to defend ourselves. And interestingly, had she defended herself, I mean, she could have said, look, I'm made in the image of God, and it would have been true. Instead, she pauses, doesn't defend herself, and instead gives an answer infinitely more brilliant and more beautiful. And I would suspect perhaps some of us need to contemplate this a little bit in how we interact in the world around us. I suspect for many of us, one of the great struggles that we have in terms of failings in our character and such is that uh, when we are confronted with conflict or insult or inconvenience or whatever else it is, there is no delay before the selfishness and the self-centeredness show up. The problem happens, our feelings get hurt, and we explode with self We don't even push pause long enough to theologically consider the situation. We don't push pause long enough to even think about Jesus might be doing something in this situation. We don't pause long enough to realize that perhaps God has actually presented us with an opportunity, not just a problem. We just explode with self I've been saying now for months, I think this is uh, really the primary problem that's going to end up coming from our nation's COVID response. 
as people have been enabled to spend more time in isolation of thought, more time in isolation of emotion, more time in isolation of even physical presence, that delay between problem and self is almost non-existent. And the sad reality is that in doing so, we miss the benefit. We miss the blessing, and in fact, actually, if we were going to put it kind of in the language we've been using, we'd fail the test. Because self and sin comes out so readily. You see what happens for her, she, she passes and she gets Jesus' uh, spectacular condom, I mean, uh, commendation, his praise here in verse 28, the greatest praise that we get to see him give. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you right now as you desire. And instantly, her daughter's fine. This marvelous healing handled over distance. This marvelous healing handled by the word of his power. But interestingly, I I don't think it stops there because the story is told the same way in Mark as well. This transitions into what follows immediately after. He heals this woman with great faith and then immediately goes on to heal even more, transforming the world around him, the culture around him, crowds coming up, healing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others, a different crew of people altogether, showcasing his mercy and his generosity. It's actually even the thing that gives preachers fits. How is it that the previous chapter he feeds 5,000, and then Matthew included again here he feeds 4,000? I mean, it's a smaller number, it's a smaller group. Why would that even matter? (laughs) Because it's a group of Gentiles. The first great one, the 5,000 in chapter 14, is largely comprised of Jews, those that we would expect to follow Jesus Verse 32, he feeds the 4,000 largely of Gentiles. Those we would never expect to be in his presence. Those that we would never expect to be blessed by him. Those that we would never expect to receive such unbelievable generosity. Look at what Jesus says even on them. Look, I have compassion on them. Verse 32, I have compassion on them. They've been with me. Did y'all catch this when you were hearing this? They've been with me three days without having a town to stop at to get food. They've only had the food they brought with them for three days. And Jesus, what is his assessment? I can't send them back home because I'm afraid they will literally die of hunger on the way home. What a marvelous Again, rebuke this is to the Jews and then perhaps even to us. Outcast, those that we would think would have no business in the presence of Jesus, have given up their food, given up their comfort, even to the point of sitting at his feet, to the the point where Jesus is genuinely concerned they're going to die of starvation. He can't let them walk home because they've spent too much time at the feet of Jesus. And friends, I, I suspect that all of us are certainly in that category where it's like, look, we, we're going to have problems reading our Bible sometimes. And as we hear even stories of such beautiful obedience like this, it, it 
kind of ends up bringing shame and condemnation to us because we go, well, look, I have all of these rich blessings and I don't love Jesus like that. And my life is not one that's marked by obedience or commitment in the way that uh, I would want it to be. And interestingly, I think there's a, a lovely transition here. It shows us the path. It starts with a robust, persevering prayer life that then is worked out in the compassion of Christ. Friends, some of us desperately want a robust spiritual life. We want spiritual maturity. We want to enjoy God's word more. We want to enjoy praying more. We want to enjoy being at church more. We want to enjoy the people of God more. We want to be holy. We want to stop struggling with this particular sin that we've struggled with for so many years. And yet, interestingly, we do not spend any significant amount of time asking for that every week. When you think about that, all these desires that you have, particularly the good ones, how little time you spend asking for those specific desires. Because the thing that we see here is that Jesus in this test, he's showcasing to them their faith and how it's actually maturing. But he's showcasing to them how compassionate he is. That even in the midst of of cultural blindness and brokenness, he extends compassion to those that by human standards, he shouldn't. I would challenge you and I would challenge me and all of us together to maybe from this point forward to be a little bit more intentional about asking with perseverance for the good and the great things. Now, by that I mean not asking for a new car. Pray for that, that's good. If you need that, I guess a new house, a new job, or whatever else. Pray for those things, needful things, that's good and great. But I mean the spiritual things. Praying for wisdom. Praying for maturity. Pleading with the Lord for holiness. I mean, if we were going to take a show of hands, and I would never do this, how many of us have actually cried in prayer in the last month? I suspect not that many hands would go up. But I suspect that almost all the hands that go up would be crying in prayer over sorrowful situations and not crying in prayer over God's good gifts in the future sort of requests. Lord, make me holy. I hate the sin I have. Make me holy. I hate the fact that my faith is weak and uh, I can't understand the marvelous nature this woman exhibits. I hate that. Give me faith. Give me the good graces that I need. Brothers and sisters, the, the good news is that Jesus is compassionate. He died for our sins on the cross, was raised to give us victory, and He uh, gives generously. This is one of the great realities is that He does not minister to us from a position of scarcity. When I give my children gifts, it's always from a position of scarcity. I have a limited amount of dollars, and I like to give them dollars, but I have a limited amount of which I can do that with. There's no limit to the Lord's good graces, and He can give generously. So learn the habit of asking for the right things so that He would show compassion to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for 
your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for this Canaanite woman, a woman I look forward to meeting in heaven. Uh, Oh Lord, might it be that you would give us faith like this. It's not preoccupied with self. It's not preoccupied with pride, but instead is preoccupied with Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.